Well, good morning. I'm Roger, and it's great to see you. I hope you're doing well. If this is your first time joining us, then I'm so pleased you're here. And I hope you picked up from our worship time that we think that Jesus is fully, absolutely amazing. Uh, and actually, we're going to spend the next few minutes looking at one of the most incredible descriptions of Jesus that's ever been written. It's been a strange year, hasn't it? And some plans have looked pretty different, as well as everything else. Uh, there's the fear of having to quarantine and you come back from somewhere. There's travel corridors and travel restrictions. But if you've been around for the past few weeks here, then you'll know that at Grace Church, we've actually gone to Greece for the summer. Not literally, of course, but we've been looking at a book in the Bible called Philippians. And this is a letter written to a church in Philippi, which is a Roman colony in northeastern Greece. This church there was actually started by Paul himself, the author of the letter, when he had passed through the town on his travels. And he was writing primarily to thank them for supporting him financially uh, in his mission to spread the good news of Jesus across Europe. But Paul being Paul, he also took the opportunity to encourage them, to write to them, to strengthen them in their community together. And although this letter was written 2,000 years ago to a church that's in a town that's now a town of ruins, actually this letter remains deeply relevant and encouraging for us today in 2020. So I'm going to read the first few verses of our passage. Uh, this is Philippians 2, uh, verses 1 to 4. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. You can't be a Christian by yourself. And Josh helpfully reminded us of this a couple of weeks ago in his preach on the first bit of Philippians. And it's clear again in these few verses. Paul is calling the Philippians to be like-minded, to have a unity of spirit. And that's an instruction that only makes sense in the context of community. And who does this apply to exactly? Why? Well, if you look at one, uh, verse 1 again, if we were to, to kind of paraphrase it, we'd be seeing uh, Paul saying, if you've been built up by Jesus, if you've tasted of God's love which has been poured out, if you, if you share in his spirit, if your heart has been warmed by him. These are just four different ways that Paul's writing of what it means to believe the gospel. So this that we're going to look at this morning applies to the whole church in Philippi, and also to anyone and everyone who follows Jesus. So this is Paul's instruction. Uh, let's look at verse 3 again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Well, I don't know about you, but this sounds either incredibly naive or incredibly idealistic. Or maybe it's just so out there that it doesn't really compute for you. I mean, have you ever been in a context where no one did anything from their selfish ambition? Where everyone counted others as more significant than themselves? 
this is impossible, isn't it, Paul? Stop making us feel bad with your unrealistic expectations. <laughs> I don't know if I ever found myself part of a community like that. I, I worry that I'd ruin it within about two minutes of being part of it. <laughs> I mean, in theory, I want to be kind and generous towards others. I, I really do. But when there are fears of a pasta shortage, my, my instinct deep down is still to want to stock up on three kilograms of fusilli just in case. Why, why should I be the one to run out? Well, actually, although I know I've got a selfish streak, and I think we all do, really, I'd love to be part of a self-giving, caring community like the one that Paul describes. So how are we, a Grace Church, meant to achieve something so radical as this loving unity, as this thriving community that Paul is describing? Well, let's look at what he says next until the Philippians. So on to the next few verses, verses 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being found, uh, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. Wow. Paul doesn't give the Philippians a load of strategies for unity or a list of performance metrics to check up on how they do. He tells them about Jesus. And whenever we ask how, the answer is always Jesus. Whenever we ask how, the answer is always Jesus. Well, like the rest of the New Testament, Philippians was originally written in the form of ancient Greek. And according to the Greek experts, uh, the way that verses 6 to 11 were structured and written makes it seem like they're originally part of a song or a poem. Uh, that's why the NIV translation that I read from um, has this part in indented and laid out a bit like a song. Uh, it's not clear whether Paul himself was the songwriter or whether he was just quoting to the Philippians a song that they would have already known and perhaps sung together. As a musician, personally, I'd love to know how the melody went to this song originally. It'd be, it'd be fun to be able to play it. <laughs> In reality, we could spend a lifetime looking into the depths and intricacies of this amazing passage. But this morning, I want us to just revel in the beauty of this description of Jesus together. So let's look back at our passage. And to start, Jesus is completely God. And verse 6 tells us that Jesus has the very nature of God. He's in the very nature of God. And that might remind you, actually, of the Hebrew series that we did together as a church earlier this year, looking at that book in the Bible where it says in chapter 1 that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature and that Jesus himself is sustaining all things through his powerful word. The other day we had a picnic at a university park with some friends who'd had a baby just before lockdown started. So we were meeting baby Elsie for the very first time and asking that classic question, which of her parents does she look like? 
And it was the expecting mixture, really, of she's got a bit of her dad's nose, a bit of her mum's eyes. If I'm honest, I struggle to see those kinds of resemblances. But when we think about Jesus, he is exactly like God the Father. Not just in some superficial attribute, but in every way. The characteristics of Jesus the Son are a perfect match for the characteristics of God the Father. And Jesus has complete equality with status with God the Father. Although he's the Son, he wasn't made or created. He's not a second tier of God. Jesus wasn't a strategy devised by God the Father after humans had had a particularly bad week. No, the Son has been eternally present with the Father. As the opening of John's Gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word uh, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is this Word who was in the beginning with God. And he is equal with God. Jesus did not consider though, that this place of prominence was something to work to his own advantage or to be grasped at or to be clung onto. His character isn't self-serving or calculating or manipulative. It's such a contrast with what we often see in uh, political leaders and world leaders, isn't it? I mean, I've, I've been following some of the news coverage about Lebanon recently after that horrific explosion in Beirut. And it's shocking and staggering, really, to see that the, the whole government has resigned um, because of the levels of corruption there. But Jesus isn't like our corrupt earthly politicians who are so often looking to serve their own agendas. No. Jesus made himself nothing. So then, secondly, Jesus came willingly to earth as a servant. This was the choice freely made to lay aside his earthly position, etc., to lay aside his heavenly position and to come into the muck and grime of life on earth. But he didn't stop being fully God. Rather, he, he took on humanity, becoming fully man as well. And Jesus becomes the God-man, if you will. And he became a servant, as, as well as it says in verse 7. Um, your Bible translation might even have it here as a slave. Although one day everyone will recognise Jesus as Lord, as the ruler of the whole earth, when he came and arrived on earth, it was in the form of a servant, a slave. This is the paradox of Christmas of the baby who is God, of the king sleeping in the feeding trough, of the Lord of all coming humbly as the servant of all. And we see this too in Jesus' life. He doesn't just walk around saying, I'm the Lord, worship me, everyone. No, he meets the physical needs of those who he meets, healing them, freeing them from the demonic oppression, feeding them miraculously. And he serves the Jewish people by teaching them from their scriptures, explaining to them, to, to them the character and nature of their God and his kingdom. And this paradox, the paradox of the God-man, keeps breaking through in the gospel accounts. And we see it in John 13, where Jesus has been having a meal with his followers. And he gets up from dinner, takes off his cloak, gets a towel and a basin of water, and starts washing his disciples' feet. 
And to Peter, his follower, his disciple, this seems offensively wrong. Lord, do you wash my feet? He says, you shall never wash my feet. He knows that Jesus is Lord. And he can't wrap his head around his master doing the job of a servant for him. But Jesus helps Peter to understand. He says to him, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Well, just a day after he said this, and after he washed his disciples' feet, Jesus was dead, executed in the most horrific form that the Romans knew. And this brings us on to verse 8 of our passage and on to our third point. Jesus was obedient to death on the cross. This is where the paradox of the God-man gets ramped up to another level, because at the cross, the God-man dies. Humans whom Jesus came to serve hold a sham trial, beat him, whip him, hang him high on a piece of wood to slowly expire, stick a spear through his side to make sure he really is dead, and bury him in a stone tomb. This is the blackest day of human history, the so-called Good Friday, when the sustainer of all life lies dead in the tomb. I think some of us who've been church, around church for a while can forget or dismiss the scandal here. So let's, let's just pause for a moment and just ponder this. The God-man dies. Not just any death, but crucifixion. Death on the cross. The Old Testament law makes it clear that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. And yet here, the kind, but loving, perfect Jesus suffers that very cruel fate. Christ, the anointed one, dies a cursed death. How could this be? Why would Jesus accept such pain, such humiliation? And how could his death be the result of his obedience? Well, for starters, is proof again for us of his divinity. Because only a divine being can accept death as obedience. I mean, for the rest of us, death is a necessity, isn't it? It's, along with taxes, it's the only certainty in life, really. But for Jesus, death was obedience. That doesn't still ex quite explain the why of the cross thing. And our hymn actually doesn't quite spell it out for us. But thankfully, Paul makes it clear in another of his letters in the Bible, this time to the Romans. By one man's obedience the many will be made righteous, it says. Jesus chose death so that we could be made right with God. Without the cross, there could be no forgiveness of sins, for at the cross, Jesus took upon himself the sins of the whole world. There is no other way for us messed up, broken human beings to be able to be in relationship with the perfect God, apart from through the cross where this amazing swap takes place. Jesus takes the punishment that all your mistakes and failures deserved and gives you his flawless record instead. Why did Jesus die? He did it for you and he did it for me. 
This was the climax of his humility. He laid aside his heavenly position and then laid aside even his earthly life in order to serve us. And he did it joyfully. As it says in Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Lastly, then, as is alluded to in that verse I just read, Jesus has been exalted by the Father. Let me read Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11 again. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every knee, every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every time acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father responds to the humble obedience of the Son by raising him to life. As one of the commentators puts it, the resurrection of Jesus is the Father's Amen to the Son's It is finished. Exaltation follows humiliation. Jesus has been exalted to the highest place, to the, the right hand of the throne of the Father, the position that he didn't try and gain by his own efforts, but it's been given. Just on the surface level, these verses are, are pretty amazing, but there's actually another layer even to what's going on here. And for that, we're we going to look at the book of prophecies from the Old Testament called Isaiah, which was written about 700 years before Jesus lived. And one of the things that I find most fascinating about Paul, actually, is that before he encountered Jesus, he was a, an expert, a scholar on the Jewish scriptures, which means that when he was writing this letter to the Philippians, he would have been very well familiar with these verses from Isaiah that we're about to read. So it's Isaiah chapter 45 and starting at verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. You see, Isaiah gives a clear picture of Israel's God, of Yahweh, the only God, the God who offers salvation to the ends of the earth and who will one day be worshipped by all. And in Philippians, we now see that it is through Jesus that we can be saved. Before him, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Jesus isn't a competitor or a rival to Yahweh. He truly is Yahweh. God himself came to save us through Jesus. And when we acknowledge and worship Jesus as Lord, it is to the glory of God the Father. Wow. If you haven't personally come to believe that Jesus is Lord, uh, maybe this is all very new to you, or you've just got lots of questions about what it means, well, Grace Church would love to help you on your journey. So if you're watching this live, I think the best thing for you to do would be to click on the live prayer button that is there on your screen. 
this will just uh, open up a private chat with one of the members of the team here who'd love to get in touch with you and, and arrange a time to chat and answer those questions. Or you can always at any point drop an email to hello at gracechurchnottingham.org and someone will get back to you to continue your journey. But maybe it's that even now you feel in your heart that you want to make some sort of commitment to this God, to, to Jesus, who we've been looking at this morning. It doesn't have to be complicated. Uh, you just start by praying something like this. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and I want to follow him. And actually for all of us, following Jesus and living by his example is what it's all about. Let's remember what it says in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Just like for the Philippians, this Jesus who we've been reveling in is our great example. In our relationships with our family, in our relationships within our church community, it's about having the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is why Paul's included this amazing hymn in his letter. He's helping the Philippians to see and understand what Jesus is like, giving them the perfect example of how to contribute to a thriving community of love, kindness, care, and humility. To end then, how do we actually get started in living this out, in emulating the mindset of this, our amazing, humble saviour? Well, it's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. That's actually a really helpful book by Tim Keller that talks about some of these same attitudes, talks about the humility of Christ and how we can have his mindset. Self-forgetfulness is not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. And it's about thinking of Jesus more. When I was quite small, I remember being taught this saying by my mum. And it's always stuck with me. It's just this. Jesus, others, me. That's the progression that we need to go through in our thinking, in our mindset. Jesus, others, me. And if we wanted to sum up the whole of today's passage in three words, perhaps that would be the best way of doing it. Jesus, then others, then me. In our lives with one another, we get to be like our kind, caring, feet-washing saviour, Jesus. Well, as we close now, I'm going to pray for us. And to do so, I'm going to use the words of this hymn as a guide. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, and thank you that you, though you had a position of such prominence, you didn't think about it as something that could be used to your own advantage to your own ends, but you chose to come down onto earth as a servant and you humbled yourself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're amazed that you died so that we could know relationship with God. And we thank you that you have been exalted, you have been raised to the right hand of the Father where well, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will recognise that you, Jesus, are Lord. And we ask that you would help us, Jesus, to follow you more closely and to live out your love in our community, in our family, 
Amen. It's been great to be with you this morning. Have a great day.